0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Isaiah 31, when I was in seventh grade, in seventh grade, I remember it was seventh grade because of the house that we were living in, my parents decided to leave us home alone. I'm the oldest of five and so I was the man of the house, you know, and uh, I was the 7th grader and I was sitting there in the in the din The den of our house was a converted carport, a single car carport that my dad had built walls and and windows into and doors. And um, I'm sitting there on the couch, the youngest three who are a good bit younger than us, they were off in bed. They were asleep and such. Me and my next brother, Adam, um, who's two years younger than me, we're watching television. Probably we're watching X-Files because that was kind of our favorite show at the time. So you got to get it. It's nighttime. We're home alone. We're watching X-Files, all right? And so I'm on the couch here at the sofa. My brother is sitting on the floor there in front of me. And suddenly, um, I don't know when, but suddenly this huge boom hits the wall right behind me, all right? This wall right behind me. My brother stands up and lights out of that room like a cannon. He was gone. I mean, like, he didn't ask questions. He didn't look around. He was just up and gone, right? And so I'm sitting there on the couch, and um, I'm not a runner when I get scared. I'm a freezer, all right? And so I just lock up like I'm about to die. A few seconds later, another, boom. And then a few seconds after that, another, boom. And I have not breathed in nor out in the last few moments. I'm in full cardiac arrest, and I'm fully understanding what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother because my brother was gone. He was half a house away and he was under his bed and I'm there all alone by myself dealing with this, this threat. I'm, I'm being attacked. I'm being threatened. To my right, Is a door that goes outside, right? There's a door that goes outside and a few seconds go by between the booms and the doorknob starts to rattle, all right? And I don't know what to do. Everything in me was trying to look at the door, but I was so frozen in fear that I could not make my head turn towards the door. I'm I'm just sitting there about to die under threat and uh, needing to call help, but I didn't—so looking back, it's probably a bad— deal that my parents left me um, home alone, but they did. And so I look over, finally, the door opens up, and I look over, and I see my dad's head sticking, smiling, looking at me, you know? And I don't remember what he said. I don't remember exactly what I did, but I do remember at one point he says, where's Adam? And I was like, that fool gone, all right? He got scared, and he ran. We didn't have a conversation, my brother and I, at that time, because, you know, he's a fifth grader and I'm a seventh grader. We weren't really delving into the deeper meanings of life. But I did, now looking back, wonder, where did my brother run? Where did he go that he thought was going to be secure? Where did he go that he thought would be safe? At that time in our life, the greatest level of security and safety we had was on the other side of that wall laughing at us, right? My dad and my mom, they were gone. And sadly, for my siblings' sake, I was the next line of defense. And he ran off and hid somewhere in our house. He ran off and hid looking for them. And that really brings up the question that's found in Isaiah 31. When you feel threatened, where do you run? When you feel that you are under attack, to whom Will you go? That's the question and the heartbeat that's going on in this phrase, and it really does bring up this concept or this this uh, this realization that the direction in which you're looking is the direction in which you will run. I'm going to explain that a little bit more as we go on throughout the rest of uh, this morning. But the direction in which you're looking is the direction in which you run. So today I'm going to look at Isaiah 31. We're going to answer that question when you feel threatened. Where will you go and what is threatening you? But before we do, let's read Isaiah, or let's pray together. And then um, you pray for me, I'll pray for you. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your words. Would you open our mind, our eyes, our hearts uh, as we read the word of God? Would you, would you teach us where we need to change? God, I pray that we would leave here today, even if we feel threatened, even if we feel under attack, God, I pray that we would leave here running toward the lion, running toward the eagle. So God, protect us. Give us strength when we feel alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Isaiah 31 is within the context of the nation of Assyria was attacking Israel. They were coming in from the north, and they're they're bad dudes. And so the Israelites felt threatened, and felt threatened for good reason. Listen, if the Assyrians are to come in, they mean no mercy. They have no category for grace. The Assyrians are the same group of people that Jonah uh, so much did not want to go share the gospel with. That or the good news of Jehovah, that he uh, would rather run away from God than to share the good news of God to the Assyrians. These are bad, bad people in every imaginable way, whether it's secular history or it's biblical history. The Assyrians are horrible people. And so the Jews are feeling threatened as this nation marches to their north, and they're looking for help. They are valid in their threat. They have good reason in their threat. But they are looking for help. And as we read uh, Isaiah 31 as modern readers, it really begs a couple of questions here. The first question is, in what ways do you feel threatened? What is it that is possibly right now in your life, or most commonly if you feel safe and secure right now, what is it that causes you to feel threatened or under attack? And then it asks the question that I've already asked this morning, to whom will you go? Where are you going to go if you feel attacked, if you feel threatened? I think there's a number of ways that we could make a list. We could write down all of these things uh, that we feel threatened by. I wrote down a few of them. There is the loss of lifestyle or livelihood. Maybe you are at your job or at your work. You're feeling like possibly because of the economic downturn, because of different situations that are going on. You feel as though potentially... Your livelihood will be taken from you. There might be something done at work that there could be a situation brewing right now in which you did not do what is being said that you did, and yet you're kind of feeling like, well, I might, I might lose my job in this. You feel threatened by that. I know and I speak to people regularly who feel that they they won't be able to evolve with the changing infrastructure, the changing economics. Their skill set is getting outdated and they're not sure they're going to be able to keep up. And so they feel threatened by that. They feel like their livelihood or their lifestyle is going to be taken away from them. And that's a, man, that's a valid threat. If you're feeling that, that that's a hard thing to deal with. That's a hard thing to wrestle, to wrestle with and, and to carry with you. Another thing that is being threatened, a little less personal but more broad, is the concept of truth. What is true? And what is wrong? We believe as Christians, we believe that there is truth, that there are things that align with reality. They reflect reality. We believe that there are things that are just not true. And yet in our culture right now, there is this pervading, this, this, uh, this, this undercurrent of a denial or a questioning of whether or not there are things that are true and whether or not you can know that there are things that are true. The most common cultural way that you see this is in this very um, casual comment that people will make regularly where they'll say something to the point of, well, this is my truth or you speak your truth. Now, I I understand what's going on in the phrase, but really the the, the use of those words is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. Truth is akin to something like like the, the sun. You know, that big ball of fire that is in the air. There's something like that. We don't use possessive pronouns when we talk about the sun. Nobody says, this is my son. You tell me about your son, all right? It's just the sun, And that's similar to what the truth is. And maybe we can feel that truth is under attack. Maybe we can feel there's some sort of concept in which truth is under attack. People don't want to be called wrong. And the quickest way to not ever be called wrong is to say there is no standard. There's no truth. There's no reality, so you can just be or do or think whatever you want to be or do or think. I think also value and character are under attack. This sounds like an old preacher thing to say, but bear with me. I think that it's pretty obvious as I look around. We don't value what we used to call character anymore. I am convinced that you can be right and be decent at the same time. But that seems to be a long lost belief. Many come to see that approach as either being weak or or ineffective is clearly under attack. Holding values and convictions seems to be something that is no longer okay. I think if you look at the news, if you look at one of the storylines that's dominating our headlines right now, one of the perfect examples of this is the, um, the nomination of the Supreme Court Justice, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. I always say her name wrong, but her nomination has brought up. Now, listen, I understand that people can have differences of opinions. If you've read her legal briefs and, and if you've read her opinions on things, you can have differences of opinions on things. And she and I have differences of opinion. One of the most known or, or common things about uh, Miss Barrett is that she is uh, a Catholic. She's a practicing Roman Catholic. And so, of course, her Catholicism and my baptism, whatever you call it, uh, they don't agree with one another. I have some theological bones to pick um, with Miss Amy, but, but there are some things that we agree on. There are some things like the sanctity of human life, which begins at conception. Also the way in which you read the constitution, that you read the constitution as it was written, not read into the constitution what cultural whims would tell you to read into it. And so um, there is some agreement with there. There's some things like that, But those are not really a lot of the things that are being debated. Uh, The constitutionality or how you... One of the biggest things, just looking, objectively looking at headlines from major news sources is what she's being attacked for is uh, her beliefs about human life that are consistent with her Catholicism. That have been consistent with Catholicism forever. In fact, there are a couple of headlines that call her a radical or call her an extremist. It is not radical or extremist for a Catholic to eat, believe, and act like a Catholic. That's just being a Catholic. That's just the way that goes. But those things are being attacked. Why? Because in some ways and in some regards, Christianity and the concepts of Christianity are now considered to be extremist. In fact, there are some headlines that said that she hid some of her views. She hid some of her views, which is ridiculous to say. She hit some reviews. So when we are reading things like that, again, let me me be very clear on this. I'm not really talking about her validity to be a Supreme Court justice. All I'm talking about is the undercurrent of media against a certain aspect of what this person has held for a long time. And in that, we can see a very clear reality that Christianity or Christian ideals or Christian doctrines are considered to be extremist or radical. So, the Jews in Isaiah 31 feel threatened. I, in some regards, feel threatened. So the question would be at this point, where do you go when you feel threatened? Where would you go and to whom would you go if you were under attack? Let's read verse 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And who depend on horses? They trust in the abundance of chariots and in large number of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel, Israel, and they do not seek the Lord. But He also is wise and brings disaster. He does not go back on what He says. He will rise up against the house of the wicked and against the allies of evildoers. Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord raises his hand to strike, the helper will stumble. And those, and the one who is helped will fail. But both will all perish together. Both will perish together. The concept here is that the Jews felt attacked from the Assyrians, from the north, so they looked to the south for an ally. They look to the South for help. And if you know biblical history, or if you've read the Bible before, this is on its face insane. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't align with the biblical story. And yet, in some regards, there is a little bit of sense. There is some. Logic to it. So if the Assyrians are attacking you and you feel threatened by sword and spear and, and armies, then you're looking for an ally that has more swords and more spears and what it calls an abundance of chariots and a large number of horsemen. You're gonna look for that sort of help. However, God told them specifically not to go to Egypt for that sort of help. For for a number of reasons. Listen in Deuteronomy 17. Verse 16, when God was establishing the the throne, the kingdom of Israel, he was talking about the king, and this is what he says. I thought this was a super Bible nerdy little thing, but I, I thought it was really cool. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, he says, "...however he, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself, or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses." There's a number of times where people could look at what God says, and they're like, well, I'm not real sure what God meant. I know I did wrong, but I wasn't clear on what God said. God literally says, don't go to Egypt and get horses. And in Isaiah 31, it says, let's go to Egypt and get some horses, all right? And so it's clearly in, regards, in rejection. Why would God care if the king has a bunch of horses? Because God wanted the king of Israel and the, and the Jews and the Israelites to depend on him for military success. That's what God was wanting them to do. But they went to Egypt to get more horses. For the Lord has told you, Deuteronomy 17, 16 finishes this way. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. So first of all, God wants the Jews to depend on him for military success. But that's not really how he explains it. He says, you are never to go back that way again. What does God mean by go back to Egypt? Well, you know, you know exactly what he means by that. The Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians. God freed the Jews from Egypt. And God is saying this, essentially, you can get a king and you can establish a military and you can have strength and all of that sort of stuff. But when you need help, don't go back to the ones that enslaved you. Don't go back to the ones that killed all of the male children. Don't go back to the ones that that beat you and ridiculed you. Don't go back to the ones that encircled you with pain and, and put chains on you. Don't go back to the ones that enslaved you. That's what God says to them. And yet, they feel threatened and they went running back to the thing that enslaved them. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But there's another element that's going on in 1 through 3. Not only are they going back to the ones that enslaved them, but they are ignoring the reality that our fights, our fights, the Jews' fights were not just flesh and blood. That there was a spiritual element to it. They saw swords and spears and and fallen walls, and they thought that was all there was to it. And the reality that God is trying to remind them of and us of as well is, no matter what happens to you, That your greater fight has to do not with your physical body, but with your eternal soul. That's why he says the Egyptians are men. They're not God. You can think the Egyptians are strong. And I would even argue that God would say, yeah, they're super strong, but they're not God. And their horses are flesh. They're not spirit. You have a bigger problem going on is what God is saying. God is reminding them of The text that uh, Pastor David read earlier, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Obviously we have real physical problems that we have to address. Obviously there are things that happen in your life that are physical in nature and you feel threatened by them. But what we have to constantly and always keep in mind is there is a greater spiritual fight that is going on. When it comes to Satan, what you have to grasp is, and never lose sight, is that your enemy, Satan, is never going to be your friend. You can't win him over. You can't manipulate him. You can't use him for a season. That is one snake that will always bite and will always kill. Hear me on this, and I'm going to explain it more in just a second. But don't go back to the thing that enslaved you when you feel threatened. Don't run towards the things that had you. It feels, though, at times that Egypt is our only source. It feels, though, at times that the things we know are our only safety, but they are not. Look at 4 and 5. For this is what the Lord said to me. As a lion or a young lion growls over its prey... When, it, when a band of shepherds is called out against it and it is not terrified by their shouting or subdued by their noise, so the Lord of armies will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like a hovering birds. So the Lord of armies will protect Jerusalem by protecting it, he will rescue it. By passing over it, he will deliver it. God says you can go to Egypt or you can go to the lion and the birds. You can go to the lion in the birds. He's using these two animals to um, personify two characteristics he has. So the first one is the lion. With the lion, he's saying, just like a young lion will pounce on its prey and will growl over its prey, the image here is that a lion picks off a lamb in a shepherd's uh, flock. It'll pick off a lamb. And even if all the shepherds all get together and they bang sticks together and they yell and they, and they scream, the lion just looks at them like, I am not threatened by your noise. In fact, you are threatened by me. God is saying, I'm not afraid of the Assyrians. I'm not afraid of the Assyrians. In fact, the Assyrians should be afraid of me. I'm not afraid of the thing that keeps you up at night. God says, I'm not afraid of the thing that turns your stomach over. That thing that you can't stop talking to your friends about and your spouse about. That thing that you can't stop researching. God says, I'm not afraid of that. That's a lion picture. Then he paints this other picture with these birds hovering. When I read that, and I don't know what image pops in your mind, the image that pops in my mind is wrong. I I picture... Seagulls. I don't know why I picture seagulls, but you ever been on the beach and there's just like a million seagulls? You want if, if you have one or two seagulls, if you want a million, just feed one of them, all right, and then you'll have a million seagulls. They'll all be flying around, and that sort of circling, that swarming, is sort of the image that I picture here. I picture God saying, like birds that are swarming around, I'll protect, or something like that. I don't know. That's the imagery that I got, but that's not what God is saying. That's not what He's not talking about a swarm. Of, he's talking about one. Mighty eagle. He's not, he's not seagulls. He's an eagle. Look at the way that this is used elsewhere in the Bible. Deuteronomy 32 verse 11. He watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over his young. He spreads his wings, catches him, and carries him on his feathers. Psalm 91 verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers He will take, you will take refuge under his wing. His faithfulness will be like a protective shield. He's not talking about hovering. He's not talking about attacking like he was with the lion. In this regard, he's talking about protecting. Anybody here brave enough to walk up to an eagle? Let's say you say a bald eagle. Somehow you walk up to an eagle's nest, and there are young eagles in the nest. And the Daddy eagle has his wings over him. Anybody going to walk up and just kind of stick your hand in there, see what else is in that nest at all? No, you're not going to pull your hand back. You won't have a hand to pull back in that. That's the imagery that God is painting here. I will attack your enemies because I'm not afraid of them. And I will protect you because you are mine. You can go to Egypt or you can go to the lion and to uh, the eagle. It's almost an exasperated phrase that he's saying here. He says, I've never not protected you. Why are you going to run toward that which you are enslaved by or that which you were enslaved by? Not too long ago, I decided I was going to build a kayak rack in my garage, okay? So I I love kayaking. I have a kayak. Jackie has a kayak. And then we picked up some cheaper ones, you know, for the boys. And so essentially we have five kayaks, and that can take up a ton of space in your garage, right? And so um, I was going to build, I was going to build a thing, right? And I'm not really uh, what you would call like handy or or, uh, I'm not like a woodworker. or I don't even know what you got. I'm not a contractor. I don't know what you got to be. And so I decide though, after looking at some pictures on Facebook, I could do that. So I go down to Home Depot and I get me some two by fours and some screws. And I figure this is good enough. I'm going to build something. I take that home and I I decide on what I'm going to do. And so the first step was I needed to screw these two by fours into the wall. And I know enough to know you need to do that into a stud, right? Because if I don't do that, when I put five kayaks on it, I'm going to have to call one of those people that knows what they're doing, you know, like a real contractor, woodworker or something, a house builder. I don't know. And so that's what I was going to do. I was going to try to build one of these things. And so the first step is to find these studs. So I'm over there like this, tapping on the wall, right? because I don't have a stud finder, and so I'm just tapping on the wall, and I feel like this isn't working. I'm, th- I'm saying to myself, I know this is kind of what you're supposed to do, but I also feel like this is absolutely 100% not what you're supposed to do. And so I'm sitting there kind of tapping on the wall over and over and over. I feel like that guy, you know, that walks around with that Y-shaped stick looking for water, this is not going to work, all right? And so I'm doing that, and then my neighbor next door, he's like looking over his fence like Wilson from Home Improvement, and he says, hey, Josh, you need a stud finder. And I was like, I know I need a stud I don't have a stud finder. He says, I've got one. And so he goes to his garage. He gives me a stud finder and I use that. And that thing works really good. I don't know how it was like black magic, but you just rub it along the wall and then, and I just drew a little line, go over here, drew a little line, built my thing. It looked awesome, by the way. Long story short, it looked awesome. Made Jackie come out and look at the thing I made in my total masculinity. And so I gave back the stud finder. My point is this. We do that when we have this need, when we feel threatened, when we have this need of uh, of things like affirmation. When I feel threatened in my masculinity, when I feel threatened in my personhood, when I feel threatened in my intellect, when I feel threatened in my financial security, we will run off. And try to do the thing that we know how to do. Try to do the thing that we can manage. Instead of just getting the real thing, which is God. We will go off and try to fill in all of these voids with lesser things. This happens real sadly a lot of times in like marriages or, or, or in relationships. Where your relationship and your strength in that relationship feels threatened by something they're doing or they're not doing or something someone said or didn't say. And so what we end up doing is going outside of the marriage and we try to find other people and other things to fill in that void. My strength in the relationship feels threatened, so I'm going to go off and find other people that will tell me that I'm that I'm a good listener and that I'm strong and that I'm a real real man. And that I really provide. We go looking for these other things instead of going toward God, who we're supposed to find our identity and our security in. That happens in that. And I know that sometimes there's people in a church this large, there's going to be people who are playing around with those sort of things. And I think it's helpful for you to actually see what's going on there. It's not that they're less. It's that you're less and you're looking for somebody to fill in a hole that you were only supposed to fill by God, not them. So of course they can't. So of course they can't. We do this all of the time with our intellect and our finances, all of these things. We walk around looking like we're tapping on a wall, trying to find the answer. And in reality, what we really need is God. What we really need is somebody from the outside. God says, hey, you can go to Egypt or you can go to the lion and the eagle. You can go to the one that has always provided. Isaiah puts these two options out in front of you and it reminds me It reminds me of uh, the artwork, the quote from Joshua that many of you may have in your house or maybe you've seen in somebody else's house. How many of you have either this quote in your house or you have seen somebody else, maybe your parents or something have this quote? As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Let me see your hands. How many? Look at that. Look at everybody. y'all thought y'all had just a nice little, unique piece of fir- uh, something in your house. You didn't. Everybody has that. As for me and my house, we will serve. I've seen it etched in rocks outside of the house. As for this house. We will serve the Lord. I've seen it on the walls. I think it's a great quote. It's really cool to have in your house. I love it. I also love the phrase that he says right in front of it. "Joshua 24:15. Picture this: "Joshua is old. He's dying." He's about to turn over the mantle of leadership of Israel. The one he got from Moses, all right? He's an old soldier, and he says, choose for yourself today, which you will worship. The gods of your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? See, right before he says that part that we all put up on the wall, he says pretty sarcastically, hey, choose your God. You could choose the God of the Egyptians, which our God destroyed, or you can choose the God of the people whose land we destroyed. In other words, what what that phrase, if you were to put the phrase, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, if you were to put that in common vernacular, you might as well hang a sign in your house that says, my God can beat up your God. That's what your sign says there. That's the two options that Isaiah puts out there. You can have the Egyptian God that enslaved you, or you can serve the real God. Look at 6 through 7. What happens if we've already gone toward Egypt? Remember, there's a delegation that's already gone towards Egypt. He's yelling back, hey, that's not a good idea. Whoa, whoa to you. That's not a good idea. 6 through 7 says, return to the one the Israelites have greatly rebelled against. For on that day... Every one of you will reject the worthless idols of silver and gold that your own hands have sinfully made. (coughs) Return. Return to him those that you have evil, you have rejected. He's calling out for them to come back. It is, these two phrases are accusative in nature. They are accusing the Jews of doing something. He's saying, look, this is what you did and it ain't good. What is that? He said, over time, you have left the God that you love, the God that saved you from Egypt. And over time, because remember last week, we are built to worship. You looked for lesser things to lift up and to make better uh, or, or, or to give it worth or to give it worship. Isaiah chapter two says that those were moles and they were bats, moles and bats. Could you imagine in your house having a statue, a gold statue that you made Of a mole and then worshiping that mole. Or of a bat and worshiping that bat. They had lifted up lesser things. And to these people who had worshiped moles, who had worshiped bats, God says to them, and this is the grace, return. God says return. Return means that you can come back. Return means that you can be forgiven. You hear what I'm saying here? God is not saying, you left me. You ran away from me. You worshipped moles, so now you don't get the lion. You worshipped bats, so now you don't get the eagle. You can go with Egypt and you can deal with that. You can go get enslaved by Egypt and destroyed by Assyria. You left me. That's not what God says, and that's good for you and I because, you know why? Because we leave God. We leave God all the time. Maybe we haven't full-scale gone to Egypt, but we have played with smaller things, moles and rats, to try to give ourselves worth, to give ourselves affection. We hold within our hands these devices that make us believe that we're omniscient. There's nothing that I don't need to know that I can't know on this phone. We feel like we are all powerful. I can connect with anybody in the whole planet at any time. And then the thing feeds us back attention and affirmation. The thing we hold in our hand tells us that you are loved, that you are desired, that people like you, that they thumbs up you, that they heart you, that they are excited about you. And over time, this little root of sin and, um, and deceit wraps around our heart and enslaves us. It's like worshiping a bat, that that and in a million other ways we are falling down to something that we can hold in our hand. And to us and to them, God says, like a hero, like a, like a lifeguard, like a savior, like a friend, like a compassionate dad. He says, come back. You can come back. I know you left me, but, but you can come back. This is the beauty of the message. They think I have abandoned God and so there's no way that he will take me back. They think I have made idols and so how can my worship of him be accepted? God says to them, return. Isaiah tells us that we have all turned from God. Isaiah 53, six says, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah says that Jesus got punished because we worshiped bats. But Isaiah also says in 44, I have swept away all of your transgressions. I have swept away all the wrong you did like a cloud, like a mist driven by the sun, driven by the wind. I have swept it all away. Return, return to me for I have redeemed you. That's the gospel and that's the good news today that you can return to God. Whether it's small like a mole or a bat or me- whether you've ran to Egypt, you can return to God. Look, threats or fear or attacks have this way of exposing us. When you feel threatened, there is this revealing that happens. What do you do when you are scared? It is amazing how clear it becomes. Do you go off and look for other people and other things to to? Protect you to answer that threat, or do you run to God? When we feel under attack, we move toward where we feel we can get the help. We show that the whole time we were worshiping lesser things. Listen, after you return to God, after you come back to God, many of you will come back to God right now and right here in this place. Many of you have already returned to God. When you do, you are still going to feel threatened, you are still going to feel challenges. And so, read eight and nine and leave here empowered. 8 and 9 say, Then Assyria will fall, but not by human sword. A sword will devour him, but not one made by man. He will flee from the sword. His young men will be put to forced labor. His rock will pass away because of fear. And his officers will be afraid because of the signal flag. That's the surrender flag. This is the Lord's declaration, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. God says this, I will destroy that enemy. I'm not afraid of it. I'm going to destroy it. So run to me. That last line there where he says, His fire is in Zion. His his um, oven, his furnace is in Jerusalem. The fire was in the temple. It was this fire about worship. It never was supposed to go out. And the furnace is literally a baker's furnace. It's where you make a cake or, or a pie or whatever. This furnace and this fire. In other words, what God says is this, is this is my home. This is my people. And ain't no Assyrians gonna come and knock me off of my mountain. No matter what your Assyria is, God is not afraid. Run toward God. And so what do you do when you feel threatened? What should we do when you feel threatened? The first thing is to ask this question. What did God say? What did God say? A lot of us run around and we're afraid of things because of something that the news said. We're afraid because somebody else said something that the news says. And then when you ask them, they actually just read the headline and not the actual whole article. But both of you are afraid of it right now, right? We're afraid of what others say. The question though is, and can you answer, what did God say? What did he say about your identity? What did he say about your worth and truth and reality? About them and us? What did he say about the threats? What did God say? And then the second thing is, what did God say and what can I say? See, because here's the reality and here's the greatest truth. It is not your job to kill the enemy. God says he will kill Assyria. Exodus fourteen fourteen says, the Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. You must only be still. It is not your job to own the others it is not your job to put them in their place it is not your calling to destroy the evil remember we all have responsibilities as dads and moms and as employees and as students we all have responsibility but ultimately it's God's responsibility and God has already won you need only to be quiet our job is to speak truth in grace Our job is to let them see, to show love, to glorify our Father in heaven. Back um, when I was younger, we lived on a military base, the Navy base down in Gulfport, Mississippi. And there was this creek that ran behind our house. And most of the time, we ignored that creek. It was larger than um, what you could just step over. There was a little pedestrian bridge right there behind my house um, but most of the time, like I said, we just kind of ignored it unless there was like a hurricane or something that filled that whole thing up and it looked to my young eyes like a river. And I was always impressed with the amount of water that could flow through that creek, taking that small little creek and turning it into a river. The other times that it was not ignored was when the neighborhood kids, southern Mississippi kids, would go down into the creek and go crawdad fishing. It was a thing that Southern Mississippi kids do. I'm sure other kids do that, but that was a thing that they and we did. The way it works is you go down in the water and and, uh, you roll your pant legs up or you have shorts on and you take usually an empty coffee can or maybe a little net if you have one of those and you, you stick it down into the water behind the crawdad, or the crawfish. If you don't know what a crawdad is, it's like a tiny little disgusting lobster, all right, that lives in freshwater. All right, and so you got this crawdad, and these were small. These weren't like the big ones that you can eat. These little tiny, tiny ones. And they're down in the water, all looking gross and nasty, and you stick that can behind them. And then you take a stick, not your finger, a stick. You don't want to stick your finger in front of a crawdad because it will pinch you, and it hurts, right? You take a stick, and you put it right in front of that crawdad, and it will shoot back into that can. Sometimes you even hear it, and you're like, you got one, and you pick it up, right? That's crawdading. That's crawdad fishing. You scare that thing, because that's the defense mechanism. Even though they have claws, even though they'll pinch you, their defense mechanism is to run backwards, okay? It's not a great thing. I don't encourage you to do it, but that's the way that they did. Their little tails will um, in like that and they'll just shoot backwards as fast as they can. That's what they do. That's what you do. We feel threatened and we run backwards. We think we're getting away from the danger, but you end up running into the net. You end up running into the empty coffee can. What Isaiah 31 is telling us to do is to keep our eyes on God. And the second you feel threatened, Rest in God or run toward Him. Don't run backward into the net. Run forward into the lion, into the eagle. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.